How to Beat the Racists, a Workers' Liberty Pamphlet, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X by Dion De Silva. Quote, I'll be honest with you, I was terrified. I owe my life to that preacher and so do all the other white people who were there. End quote. So spoke a policeman outside the home of Martin Luther King in Montgomery in January 1956. King's home had just been firebombed. Yet as he surveyed the damage, he spoke to an angry crowd that had gathered. Quote, we must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. What we are doing is just and God is with us. End quote. The birth of the modern civil rights movement was the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and 56. The local preacher, Martin Luther King, threw himself into organising and leading the boycott of buses, which had separate sections for white and black passengers. The black churches were the only arena where black people could gather in number quite freely and discuss tactics and strategy. The boycott was the first of many that spread across the towns and cities of the American South. They were demonstrations, sit-ins, voter registration drives and freedom rides involving thousands of people. In 1963, there were over 930 protests in 115 cities, with more than 20,000 arrests. The undisputed national leader was Martin Luther King. His strategy was guided by his Christian belief in non-violence. He sincerely believed in loving your enemy. If confronted with violence, you should turn the other cheek. He was also greatly influenced by Gandhi's campaign of civil disobedience for Indian independence. The activists involved in demonstrations at lunch counters were refused to serve, which refused to serve black people were obviously brave individuals who believed in this idea of shaming their oppressors. Their official guidelines were, show yourself friendly at all times, do sit straight and face the counter, don't strike back if attacked, don't laugh out loud, don't hold conversations. Malcolm X was quite scathing of this approach, quote, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone, but if someone puts a hand on you, send him to the cemetery, that's a good religion, in fact that's the old time religion, end quote. Malcolm reflected the anger of the northern ghettos. The predominantly southern civil rights movement was not so confident, often they looked for the help of the federal government to sort out the racist political leaders of the south. These racist Dixiecrats had control of the local state, police force, and media. Violence, even in self-defense, was ruled out as impracticable. Black people would come off the worst. Even though Martin Luther King looked towards help from Washington and the outside world, he was prepared to put pressure on them by organizing mass demonstrations. He always stayed true to this, even though he played a balancing act between the conservatives and radicals in the movement. The ever-so-liberal Bobby Kennedy tried to buy him off. Kennedy wanted the civil rights movement to concentrate on voter registration, hoping for more votes rather than organising demos and sit-ins. It culminated in the March on Washington in 1963. Over 250,000 people marched and heard Martin Luther King's famous, quote, I have a dream speech. However, the more conservative elements objected to any radical statements critical of the Democratic Party. These same people saw the passing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act as the pinnacle of their achievements. For them, it was now, quote, out of the streets and into the suites, end quote, meaning the executive suites of top companies. At the time, Malcolm X was in the Nation of Islam. He referred to the, quote, farce on Washington, end quote, as a one-day integrated picnic. Nevertheless, Malcolm's split with the nation was due to his wish to get involved in the movement more directly. The notion of civil rights seemed rather limited to him. He argued for human rights, 
and the involvement of emerging independent African nations through the United Nations. Even after he was murdered in 1965, Malcolm's idea had a resonance in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King talked about tackling the root causes of racism. He realised that the movement needed to spread its support to the North and in particular black workers, but even he was shocked by the reaction he received when trying to organise in Chicago. King began to distance himself from the Democratic Party. There was even talk of him standing independently in the 1968 elections. He recognised the need for a social programme and came out clearly against the Vietnam War. The movement organised campaigns for social welfare for poor whites, blacks and Hispanics. Significantly, King was killed in Memphis in 1968 while he was supporting a strike of black dustmen. Spike Lee ends his film Do the Right Thing with quotes from both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. The old man character in the film seems to represent the worthy but old-fashioned ideas of Martin Luther King, whereas the angry youth are the continuation of Malcolm X's ideals. The message is, Martin Luther King was okay for his time, but now we should look towards Malcolm X and his legacy. The attempt to stress the continuity and similarities between King and Malcolm X is understandable. The official liberal view has always portrayed King as the honourable black leader and Malcolm X as the dangerous and violent one. Malcolm X has made two important contributions. Firstly, his stress on self-defence. His comment on this bears a resemblance to Trotsky's remark, quote, for every lynching we should kill 20 lynchers, end quote. The official movement never mentioned self-defence. Indeed, they often looked to the support of federal troops. Secondly, Malcolm was hostile to the state and its institutions. He castigated black people for voting Democrat. However, the organisation he built after he broke from the Nation of Islam the Organisation for Afro-American Unity, was always rather small, and a black, independent organisation is not in itself progressive. Martin Luther King was often criticised for being an integrationist. Malcolm X's widow, Badi Shabazz, argued that the slogans, quote, black and white together, we shall overcome, end quote, were no longer relevant. Quote, integration has failed, now we have to rule ourselves, end quote. But socialists share a type of integrationist approach. We can learn from Martin Luther King's attempt to build a mass movement of black and white for social progress. In the late 60s, there was tremendous potential. A movement that built links between King's Poor People's campaign and the anti-Vietnam War campaign and had answers to social problems of black, Hispanic and white workers could have been a threat to the racist Democratic and Republican parties. When Martin Luther King was shot in 1968, Many U.S. cities erupted in anger. Malcolm X had said, quote, The white man had better be glad that Dr. King is leading a nonviolent revolution. There are those who are waiting for him to fail. Then the revolution will begin. End quote. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in 1968. Was Malcolm X a socialist? Martin Thomas looks at George Brightman's book, The Last Year of Malcolm X, the Evolution of a Revolutionary, published by Pathfinder. This book was written over the year after Malcolm X was murdered in February 1965, sets out to prove that from June 1964 until his death, quote, Malcolm was a revolutionary, increasingly anti-capitalist and pro-socialist, as well as an anti-imperialist, end quote. On one level, it is solid and convincing. Shortly before his death, Malcolm said plainly that his struggle was not, quote, a racial conflict of black against white or a purely American problem. 
Rather, we are today seeing a global rebellion of the oppressed against the oppressor, the exploited against the exploiter. End quote. Quote, I believe that there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who do the oppressing, but I don't think it will be based upon the colour of the skin, as black Muslim leader Elijah Muhammad had taught it. End quote. Anyone who uses Malcolm X as authority for narrow black nationalist politics is being disloyal. In his last year, Malcolm became willing to work with the liberal-led mass civil rights movement. He called for a struggle of both black and white people, not black people alone. Quote, when the day comes when the whites who are really fed up, I don't mean those jive whites who pose as liberals, learn how to establish the proper type of communication with those uptown in Harlem who are fed up, and they get in some coordinated action going, you'll get some changes, and it will take both, end quote. He dumped the black Muslims' vague talk of a black state, quote, No, I believe in a society in which people can live like human beings on the basis of equality, end quote. Immediately after quitting the black Muslims, he summed up his philosophy as, quote, black nationalism, end quote. But by January 1965, he had rejected that, quote, I haven't been using the expression for several months, end quote. He dropped the black Muslims' line of promoting black capitalism in a way which Brightman shows must have been deliberate and considered, though he never openly argued against it and never came out clearly with an alternative. He denounced capitalism, quote, you can't have capitalism without racism, you can't operate a capitalistic system unless you are vulturistic, you have to have someone else's blood to suck to be a capitalist, end quote. He told Brightman's comrade Harry Ring that he, quote, felt it necessary for his people to consider socialist solutions to their problem. But as the leader of the movement, he said it was necessary to present this concept in a way that would be understandable to his people and would not isolate him from them, end quote. The basic statement of his organization of Afro-American unity in June 1964 had cited, quote, the Charter of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of the USA and the Bill of Rights, end quote, as, quote, the principles in which we believe, end quote. But in December 1964, he urged the OAAU to look wider, quote, the man doesn't want you and me to look beyond Harlem or beyond the shores of America, end quote. He told the OAAU to consider socialism because, he said, that was the system that the new independent countries in Africa and Asia and Scandinavia too, he said in passing, were using to get rid of poverty and provide a decent life and decent education for everyone. That those countries were not as he thought them to be does not undo the importance of Malcolm's preaching of social provision for need in place of, quote, vulturistic, end quote, profit. Unfortunately, however, Brightman's own illusions here blur the argument of the book. He weaves his presentation into a general notion of, quote, the tendency of revolutionary nationalism to grow over into and become merged with socialism, end quote, and thus blurs over Malcolm's sharp change of direction in 1964 and 65, and the deep differences Malcolm still had with working class socialists. Brightman was a Trotskyist, a long-standing member of the American Socialist Workers' Party, no relation to the SWP Britain. When the SWP went Castro-Stalinist in the early 1980s, he fought against the turn and, nearly 70 years old, was expelled. He knew that the new states in Africa were not socialist at all. All that, however, was blurred in his mind by a concept which he shared with all the mainstream Trotskyists of the time, that a great process of colonial revolution 
was sweeping the world, which somehow had an inbuilt and semi-automatic tendency to grow over into socialism, and within which class issues were secondary details. Malcolm's identification with third world states was thus, the Brightman, an identification with the colonial revolution, and ipso facto, an identification with a movement or process tending towards socialism. Moreover, for Brightman, Malcolm was also himself an example of that movement or process. Brightman's general summings up, as opposed to his detailed documentation, therefore blur Malcolm's change of direction. And Brightman gives a very blurred picture of the socialist view which he says Malcolm was moving towards. The socialist answer to racism is black and white workers' unity on programme of eliminating disadvantage by levelling up the ex at the expense of the capitalists and capitalism. The principle of unity should not stop socialists supporting black people who start struggles against racism before any large number of white workers are ready to back those struggles. Revolutionary unity can be established only by building on struggles using them as a lever to change consciousness, not by dampening them down to get unity in silence and stillness. Nevertheless, class unity remains the basic principle. Brightman mentions this issue quite clearly, quote, It is important to note that Malcolm was talking about an alliance with militant whites, not white workers. He did not share the belief of the Marxists that the working class, including a decisive section of the white workers, will play a leading role, end quote. But Brightman's blurred vision stops him developing this or another important point he makes, quote, class questions are often expressed in racial terms, end quote, that is, racial issues often have to be demystified by exposing class issues inside them. Brightman concludes, end quote, Malcolm was not yet a Marxist, end quote, not yet, but it was not only a matter of time. Malcolm was not a Marxist. Whether he would have become one if he had lived longer depends on whether he would have become convinced on the key issues separating the sort of socialism at which he had arrived, with various state capitalist and bureaucratic regimes as models, and without any special connection to the working class from Marxist working class socialism. It was not just a matter of trundling a little further along on an automatic conveyor belt. On another level, Brightman misses the point. Malcolm was beginning to think and read about socialism. He was not and could not have been anywhere near producing a new socialist strategy against racism. For a dozen years before that, he had, been a he had, had a strategy against racism, the black Muslim strategy of building black self-respect and pride encouraging racial separation and using black resources to build up black capitalist businesses in black communities. Malcolm had rejected that strategy. Malcolm was and is a great political figure, not because he offered strategic guidance. His most famous slogan was, quote, freedom by any means necessary, end quote. The phrase, quote, by any means necessary, end quote, shattered all the liberal taboos about nonviolence and not demanding, quote, too much, end quote, and the black separatist taboos too. In place of all talk of gradually scaling down racism bit by bit, it put the basic human demand, we will not tolerate any racism any longer. It was a revolutionary principle, but it said nothing about what means were suitable and effective. It offered no strategy. All it did was to open the way for clear thinking about strategy, and that was a great thing to do, especially at that time and in that place. Malcolm opened the way for others, and for himself in his last year, to think for themselves. And to string together Malcolm X's strategy from whatever selection of Malcolm's statements suits your prejudices, black nationalist, Muslim or socialist, is not the best way to think for yourself. It is not the best way to learn from Malcolm X.
Black trade unionists today. Nearly 300,000 black workers are members of trade union of a trade union or staff association, or 28% compared to 30% of the general workforce. African Caribbean workers are more likely to be in a trade union than anyone else, including white employees. 36% of African Caribbean employees are members, with the next highest membership rate being 30% for white employees. The lowest rate of unionisation is to be found amongst Pakistani and Bangladeshi workers at 16%. Black women are more likely to be trade union members than women workers in general. 29% of black female workers are members. Black male workers are less likely to be in a trade union than male employees in general, with 27% in membership compared to 32% of the general male workforce. The sharp fall in black male trade union membership between 1993 and 1997, down from 37% to 27%, suggests that the recession affected black male trade unionists to a greater degree, forcing many workers to move into non-unionised employment. Older black workers are much more likely to be trade union members. For example, nearly half, 48% of those aged 50 to 59, are in a union, compared to 38% of all workers in this age group. Source TUC Analysis of 1997 Labour Force Survey.